0: The sermon text for today is Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 39. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1523. Please listen as I read God's word. Jesus drives out impure spirits. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Jesus heals many. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Jesus prays in a solitary place. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Here ends the reading.
1: Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood, and as always, it's a privilege to be with you here this morning. We're in a series in the book of Mark titled Following the Authoritative Son of God. We have passed out over the course of the series, we passed out these. These are Mark Bible journals, and we've given these to you just as a tool to help you walk with us through the book of Mark and to be a tool to help you uh, spend time in the Bible. And if you did not get one of these, there's a whole bunch of these out at the connections table. You can make sure to grab one on your way out this morning. We've also been having a time during the message portion where we uh, hear from you what you are hearing and learning and observing as you read the book of Mark. Because of the annual meeting today, We're going to postpone that until next week. I want to just make sure we have enough time to get down there and get our meeting going and not feel like we are super rushed. So we are going to postpone the sharing time for today. But we're going to look at this passage uh, that you heard Sherry read just a moment ago. So as we come to this text today, would you join me in a word of prayer? The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. God, we come before you this morning and we again recognize your reign and your rule over all aspects of creation. We praise you this morning for your authority over all things. And we pray that as we come to this passage now, that you would help us to see it clearly, that you would help us to understand what's in this text, and that ultimately you would help us to come away with a greater awareness of who Jesus is. What Jesus has done for us. And we pray that you would help us to leave here changed people. Transformed people. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are all people under authority. As much as we may wish that it were otherwise, every single one of us has authority figures over us. And of course, those authority figures change. As you go through different seasons of life. So for example, as a young person, as a child, your parents are your primary authority figure. If you are in the sort of school formal education ages, your teachers or your professors or the principal or whoever else it might be is in a position of authority over you. When you go out into uh, the work field, when you go out into the marketplace, if that's where your vocation takes you. You go into a company or into an organization and you are under the authority of uh, a boss or a supervisor or a manager or a CEO. If you're in any kind of sports, you're under the authority of your coach or underneath your coaching staff. As we go out into the public spheres of life, we're under the authority of other people. So for example, if you leave here today and you decide to just tear down 37th Avenue going 65 miles an hour and you see the flashing lights behind you, you don't have the authority to say, you know, I just don't feel like stopping today because you're under the authority of the local police and public safety. Uh, We are under the authority of people who are uh, elected to public office, like mayors and governors and judges and other people like that. Now there are some rare exceptions to this. Uh, Unless you are a unrivaled dictator, unless you are the leader of a pure monarchy, and I'm, you know, just looking around around the room and noticing that there's none of you in here who fit those categories, okay? (laughs) And what that means is that every single one of us are people who live under authority. Now, we also live in a cultural environment where we are increasingly suspicious of people who are in positions of authority, especially the younger generation. Uh, we're suspicious of people in positions of authority, in some cases, very rightly so, because we've seen authority abused. We've seen power abused. We've seen authority and power used in ways that are dehumanizing, in ways that are harmful, in ways that are um, just selfish and self-centered, and we've, we've seen that. And so there's, there's kind of just this growing sense of suspicion of someone who has too much power or authority, because after all, we all know the same: absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so we're sort of suspicious of people with authority. And yet we're all people underneath authority. As we look at this passage today, what we see, one of the main things that we're going to observe today as we look at this is we get to see a picture of the comprehensive total authority of Jesus. And one of the dangers for us is that we would take our human experience of being under authority in the human realm, and we would project that onto God. The danger is that we would, in any way, look with any sort of suspicion upon the total comprehensive authority of Jesus and the authority of God over us, because we've, we've seen it abused so often. And it's just kind of our knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, I don't want to be under authority. But what we're going to see today, as we look at this passage, is we're going to see the good news, not only that Jesus has total comprehensive authority, but we're going to see the good news about how Jesus used his authority. And so that's how we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at it under those two headings, the comprehensiveness of Jesus's authority and the good news of how Jesus used his authority. So first, let's think together about the comprehensiveness of Jesus's authority. And we see his comprehensive authority over two different realms in this passage. Over the spiritual realm as well as over the material or the physical realm. So we see it in the spiritual realm as Jesus and these new disciples of his. Simon and Andrew, James and John. He's just called them in the passage we looked at last week. And we're told that they went into Capernaum. Capernaum was a... uh, fishing village that was on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is a, quite a big body of water, actually. It's about 15 miles long and about six miles wide. And there were a number of different port cities around this because there was a large fishing industry in, the, uh, in that region. This is where Peter lived, and it's a town of about 1,500 people. And this is uh, where Jesus goes with his disciples. And we're told that they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and Jesus began to teach. And then Mark tells us something about the authority with which Jesus taught. So verse 22, he says, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So we see this contrast between Jesus' teaching is authoritative and the teachers of the law, their teaching is not authoritative. The best way I know how to describe this is that the authority of the teachers of the law They had a derived authority, meaning that their authority came from somewhere else, right? Their authority came from quoting the Torah. Their authority came from quoting a long line of rabbinic tradition to give sort of a kind of weight to their interpretation and to give a sort of uh, credence to what they were teaching. So they had this derived authority that came from somewhere else. Jesus didn't teach like that. We're told that Jesus he taught as one who had authority, not like them. Jesus' authority was not a derived authority that he got from somewhere else. No, Jesus' authority was intrinsic to who he was because of his divine identity. And I think, you know, you, you look at p- places like the, the Gospel of John, and you see Jesus oftentimes using this phrase that you, you may be familiar with, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And when he says that, that's a way of him claiming that what he's going to say is based in his authority. He doesn't say, truly, truly, someone else has said, and then he quotes someone else. No, he says, this is what I'm saying. So he's, he's claiming his own authority. We see this also in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and then he quotes the Torah, or he quotes a interpretation of the Torah. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, And so Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the authoritative, clear interpretation of the Torah. And so Jesus doesn't teach like these teachers of the law. Rather, he teaches with authority because his authority is intrinsic to who he is because of his divine identity. But then as the text goes on, we see this other aspect of Jesus's authority where we see a battle of authority breaking out between Jesus and an unclean spirit. So the text tells us, Verse 23, just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And there's this battle of authority. Now, in the ancient world, naming someone or naming something was a way of exercising authority over him. And so when this demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, when he speaks That was a part of uh, trying to gain authority over Jesus. He's trying to put himself in a position to give himself the upper hand, to to, to demonstrate that he, he is authoritative over Jesus. That's what the demon, this unclean spirit, does, except we see that there really is no competition between their authorities. We see that Jesus simply says, be quiet, come out of him, and the impure spirit leaves. At the voice of Jesus, the spirit just flees, it goes. So we see Jesus's authority here over the spiritual realm, where unlike other exorcists in the first century, Jesus does not use any sort of spells. He doesn't use any rituals. He doesn't use any incantations. There's no hocus pocus. There's no sort of like weird stuff going on. There's no magic. Jesus simply speaks and the unclean spirit has to leave. And so we see his authority over the spiritual realm here. We also see his authority over the physical realm. We're told that after they left the synagogue, they went to Simon and Andrew's house. Simon's mother in law was in bed with a fever, and immediately they told Jesus about her. Uh, Remember that people in the first century world lived in households with their extended family. So this was not at all uncommon for Peter to be living with his mother in law. So they go to his house, they tell Jesus that she has this fever. Verse 31 says, he went to her, took her hands and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. So Jesus simply grabs her by the hand, pulls her up and the fever leaves her. And when it says that she began to wait on them or she began to serve them, that's not necessarily making a comment about her social status. What it's doing is it's giving us a picture of how completely she was healed. She went back to doing the same things that she was doing before she got sick. So her healing was complete. It was total. We then see that after evening, that evening after sunset, verse 32, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So after sunset, they begin to bring all these people to Jesus. Remember, what what we're seeing here in this passage is one long day. The Sabbath day ran from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. And so we pick up the story on Saturday morning where they're in the synagogue and then they leave the synagogue and it's the same day and they go and they heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law and then that day after sunset, after the travel restrictions had lifted for the Sabbath day, then all of a sudden the people start to bring all these people out to Jesus who, are, who have all kinds of various diseases. Uh, they have different unclean spirits. They have demons. They've got all these different things. And we get this picture of Jesus as just standing there. People are bringing all these people who are afflicted by all these things to him. And Jesus is just healing. And so the picture that we get here is of Jesus and his comprehensive authority his authority over the spiritual realm where he's driving back and he's driving out the demonic spiritual forces of darkness. We see that Jesus has authority over the physical, the material world that he's simply speaking. He's touching people and they're being healed. Jesus is healing people at will. He doesn't have to ask God the father for permission. Jesus is simply healing because he wants to heal. And so we see this clear picture of the comprehensiveness of Jesus's But the second thing that we see in the text is this. We see the good news of how Jesus used his authority. Because after all, if Jesus has comprehensive authority, but he is not good. We ought to be terrified of him. If Jesus has comprehensive, unrivaled authority. And he does not love us and put that authority to work for our good. We ought to be horrified of him. And the picture we see here is that Jesus always and in every way uses his authority for our good. Jesus is the one person that we need to have comprehensive authority. And so look at how we see this passage showing us Jesus, how he used his authority for our good. The first thing we can observe here is that he created a restored humanity in order to restore humanity. Now, to see this, we got to go back a passage where Jesus calls those first disciples. And if you're reading that passage where Jesus walks along the lake and he sees these brothers and he says, hey, you follow me. And they come and follow him. The word that comes to my mind when I read that passage is abruptness. Okay. The the picture you get is that Jesus is just walking through a crowd and randomly points to someone and says, hey, you there, follow me. And then that person leaves their family and they leave their vocation and they spend three years following this man, Jesus. And you're like, that's weird. Yes, that would be very weird. (laughs) But if you go and read the book of John, John gives us some details that Mark doesn't. John tells us that Simon and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. And so they've been listening to John the Baptist say, there's one who's coming after me, who's greater than I am, who's going to pour out the spirit on you. They see John the Baptist pointing at Jesus saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so these these men, they know something of Jesus before they begin to follow him. They had some relationship with Jesus. They had some experience of Jesus before he called them to follow him. And isn't it interesting that Mark basically erases all of those details? He strategically does not tell us those details. And the point is to highlight the authority of Jesus. When Jesus calls, they follow. When Jesus speaks, they listen. And that's the point of not giving any of those details is we're supposed to look at it and be like, Jesus just speaks and they listen? Exactly. Because that's highlighting the authority of Jesus. But not only does he have the the authority to call them, he uses that authority not only to call them, but also to send them out. And he says, I'm going to make you into fishers of men. That's a metaphor that in every place it's used in the Old Testament, fishing for people. It's a metaphor of God's judgment. And yet Jesus flips it on its head. He reverses it and says, I'm going to send you out for people. He's sending them out on a rescue mission to participate in his mission of bringing healing and renewal to the world that has been ravaged by sin. And so Jesus uses his authority to call those first disciples, and then he uses that authority to commission them and to send them out to join with him on his mission to restore humanity. When Jesus calls those first disciples, and you see that group of 12, that's, uh, the way you can think about that is that it's something of a kind of uh, restored new humanity that Jesus is forming. So Jesus uses that authority to form this new group of people, to form this new humanity, and then to send them out so that Jesus' good news and his blessing can go out from them into all of the world. And so we see Jesus using his authority for their good and for our good by creating this restored humanity so that humanity itself as a whole could be restored Another way we see it is that Jesus broke the power of the spiritual forces of darkness. We see this as Jesus is healing these people from being oppressed by demons. Now, in the ancient world, the word demon, how that word was used sort of just broadly in ancient Greek uh, outside of the New Testament, that word is used uh, to describe either a good or a bad spirit. It could be either. But in the New Testament, the word demon is only ever used to describe a spiritual being who has aligned itself with Satan, who is the deceiver, who is God's enemy. And so every single place in the New Testament that you see language of uh, spirits, unclean spirit, or demon, or anything like this, those are always describing a spiritual being who has aligned itself with Satan and the result of that spiritual being uh, in a person's life is always oppression and always death. You never see a demon or an unclean spirit and someone experiences life and freedom and flourishing and joy. You never see that. The presence of those demons, the presence of those unclean spirits and those demonic spiritual forces always leads to oppression and it always leads to death. And Jesus here, breaks the power that those spiritual forces have over us. What the Bible says is that every single one of us, apart from the divine intervention of God, we too live under the kind of oppression. We too live under the shadow of death, influenced by these demonic spiritual forces who would love to destroy us, who would love to see us internally, spiritually wither and die. And Jesus breaks the power that those spiritual beings, that those dark spiritual forces have over us. So that's another way that he uses his authority to bring liberation. The stronghold is broken. And the last way we can see it is that Jesus reversed the effects of sin. He heals people. The sickness and the suffering and the death that people experience that is a result of the corruption of sin that has entered the world, Jesus comes and he reverses that. And people are restored. People are renewed. Of course, not totally, not completely until the new heavens and new earth. But Jesus restores people. And as we go through the book of Mark, we'll see that he restores people in all kinds of different ways. Okay? His quote-unquote salvation is not, uh, it, it's not a flat sort of uh, one-dimensional thing. W- when Jesus heals someone, he doesn't just heal them spiritually. Jesus heals people spiritually he heals them emotionally, he heals them socially, he heals them physically, he heals them in all kinds of different ways. And we see them, uh, that Jesus uses his authority to drive back the forces of darkness, to drive back those uh, effects of sin and to reverse them. And what's worth noting is that faith in Jesus is not a prerequisite for his healing touch. At this point in the story, the only character who has correctly identified who Jesus is, is who? The demon. At this point in the story, not even the disciples fully understand who it is that they are following. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, when you guys finally get your act together, when you people finally give me the the glory that I deserve... When you people finally understand who I am, then I will respond by healing you. Now Jesus goes to all kinds of people who are living under the shadow of death and his heart is overflowing with compassion. Faith in him is not a prerequisite for him to bring healing into their life. Faith in him is a prerequisite for them to be in restored relationship with God the Father. But Jesus, is, Jesus heals all kinds of people who never had faith in him. Jesus healed all kinds of people who would reject him because his heart overflows with compassion. We see that Jesus loves to reverse the effects of sin. It's just a part of who he is. And this is, again, another one of the ways that we see Jesus using his authority for our good. So in all of these ways, we see the comprehensive authority of Jesus, and we see, once again, that it is Always and in every way for our good. Now, ironically, our greatest good was accomplished when Jesus gave up his authority. Maybe a better way to say that is that Jesus chose not to cling to or to use his authority for his own advantage. Jesus could have said, I don't have to go to the cross. I am the son of God. I don't deserve to be treated like that. Jesus could have said, y'all made this mess. You get to figure out how to clean it up. Jesus didn't have to use his authority in any way, shape, or form for our good. And yet that's exactly what he does. He used his authority to work out our highest good. And he didn't, he didn't cling to his authority or use it for his own advantage There's all sorts of, I think of uh, Philippians chapter 2, where it says that Jesus, God himself who took on human flesh, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, something to be grasped at. He didn't use his divine status and cling to it. Rather, he emptied himself of his glory, took on the form of a servant and suffered and died on a cross for us. And that's the picture we see here. Jesus didn't, never for a moment did he, was he relinquished of having authority. Jesus, at every moment of his execution, at every moment of his life and of his suffering and death, Jesus possessed this comprehensive authority. But when Jesus went to the cross, he chose not to use that for his own advantage. And what we see is that Jesus was, he allowed himself to be crushed under the pseudo-authority of the religious leaders, and the pseudo-authority of the Roman government. Jesus allowed himself to be trampled under the pseudo-false authority of these spiritual forces of darkness. And it looked like, didn't it, as Jesus hung on the cross, as he was hanging there naked and filled with shame, it looked like when Jesus suffered and died, it looked like all of those other people... The religious leaders and the Roman Empire and the spiritual forces of darkness, it looked as though they had won. It looked as though they had finally gained the upper hand on Jesus. It looked as though they had finally proven their authority over him and now he was subject to them. Except that's precisely the opposite of what was happening. Ironically, as Jesus hangs there on the cross and suffers and dies for us, that was precisely the moment where he demonstrated his authority over the powers of darkness. That was precisely the moment where he demonstrated his authority over those spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. And what that did was it put to rest any question about his comprehensive authority. It put to rest any question. Because as Jesus rose from the dead, he essentially proclaimed, he said, you have done the worst that you could possibly do to me. And it wasn't enough. By rising from the dead, Jesus essentially says, you on the cross, as you came and you you exerted the full force of your fury and your hatred and your anger at me, and it wasn't enough. And when Jesus rose from the dead, what he did was he demonstrated his authority over the spiritual forces of darkness. And the way that the apostle Paul says it in the New Testament is that if This is who Jesus is. If Jesus has this kind of authority and he uses it for our good, if he is on our side, who could ever be against us? And the clear and obvious answer to that is no one. We get to come to the communion table today and we get to remember and to celebrate the ways that in Jesus, God has used his authority for our good. And so I want to invite you this morning to come and to simply bask in the good news of how Jesus used his authority always and in every way for our good. I invite you to come forward this morning and to remember and celebrate the work of Christ, to remember that because he was crushed, we don't have to be. To remember that because he has been raised from the dead and has demonstrated his authority over sin and death and the evil one, that power of sin and death has also been broken over us who are in him. And so we get to remember and celebrate as we come forward to receive the broken body and shed blood of Christ. We get to remember and to celebrate that this is how God uses his authority for our good. And if he is for us, who can be against us?